Hi, everyone. I'm John C. Morley, the host of the J. Moore Tech Talk Show and Inspirations for Your Life. guys good evening it is john c morley here serial entrepreneur and you are tuned into ifyl uh, excuse me j more tech talk show two a lot of different shows so apologies about that uh you're tuned into the j more tech talk show by the way ifyl is a great show too we're just hitting up over seventy-five thousand downloads now but uh j more tech talk show is a weekly tech show if you guys are new here uh where we share all about technology why technology works the way it does and what you should do when it doesn't work the way you expect it. All right. Uh, before we do get launched in the show, there is a QR code there. But if you are watching us on another platform like on Instagram or TikTok, and you don't see the QR code, then just go to BelieveMeAchieve.com from where my amazing, inspiring creations. And um, I think you'll really like that. Whether you're here uh, live with us at 1020 p.m. at night, 1020 in the morning, 3 a.m., 3 p.m., 12 noon, 12 midnight. Makes no difference what time you're here. I'm really just grateful that you are here with me. And our master topic is, ladies and gentlemen, here it is, where tech brilliance takes center stage. Jay Moore Tech Talk. We're on show 49. By the way, in case you guys were wondering, yes, this is actually series two, uh, show 49. So what does the series two mean? Well, it means we're in our second year, in case you guys were wondering. And um, so let's kick this right off because I got a lot to talk about. First thing um, is um, Microsoft, all right? Microsoft's open AI tie-up comes under antitrust scrutiny. So what's all this about? Well, this just happened uh, basically, uh, you know, maybe about four or five hours ago. Um, the UK uh, looking into whether Microsoft's open AI deal harms competition, and Microsoft says, uh, to work with CMA in its review, um, but the US FTC is examining partnership between the company's report, and um, they move uh, that it follows a rapid advance in AI use. And so um, London, um, today, December 8th, uh, basically, uh, Reuters, which you guys know, uh, researched the Microsoft uh, partnership with chat GPT maker OpenAI, and is under the U.S. and U.K. antitrust scrutiny. And the British regulator and media reports said uh, that um, they're following the uh, startup's board, boardroom battle that led to the sudden oust and return of CEO Sam Altman. Uh, and after a dramatic episode last month, Microsoft, a major open AI backer, was granted non-voting observation position at the company by a new three-member initial board. A Microsoft representative can uh, attend open AI board meetings and access confidential information, but cannot vote on matters, including electing or choosing directors. Now, the company would not reveal who uh, from Microsoft will take the non-voting position 
and what a final OpenAI board would look like. I think this is just crazy. Um, it's 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 nuts if you ask me. And so Sam Altman uh, to return as CEO of OpenAI. And so you have to wonder what's going on. Um, he's returning as the CEO of OpenAI. Uh, overcoming the attempted boardroom uh, scandal that happened not too long ago, uh, who quit in protest of Altman's firing, which was Greg Brockman, remember that. And the company said the statement uh, that it has an agreement in principle for Altman to return alongside a new board composed of Brett Taylor, Larry Summers, and Adam D'Angelo. D'Angelo is a holdover from the previous board that initially fired Altman on uh, Friday. And he remains on this new board to give the previous board some representative uh, representation, uh, we're told. So I don't know. I, I think these people don't really know what's going on. And I think this is like a mockery that, uh, you know, what they're doing is not really true, but they're playing games with people. That, that that's, my, that's my feeling. And I think we as American people have to be concerned about what is going on. And so uh, the CMA is reviewing whether to launch a probe into Microsoft's investment to see if it could hurt UK competition. And the US FTC is also examining whether the investment could have violated antitrust laws. And um, we're going to have to just see what's going on. The FTC de declined, obviously, to comment. And Microsoft President Brad Smith said in a statement, quote, that the only thing that has changed is that Microsoft will now have a non-voting observer on OpenAI's board. I don't know. Uh, where are they going? What are they doing? The CMAs can need to find evidence that the recent fallout from Altman's affair had led to material changes in governance of OpenAI and Microsoft's influence over its affairs. And we'll just have to see what's going to go on, why it's going to go on, and, and what's their long game plan. So we're going to definitely um, keep our nose to the grindstone on that. Um, so I don't know if you guys know, but in 1987, DEC wrote the first paper describing firewall technology. Now, many of you may not know DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, uh, but DEC was always ahead of its time. Um, when I was in college and, you know, they were just always up, uh, uh, you know, high school, they were always just at the top of their game. And so when we think about, you know, uh, being at the top of the game and we think about, you know, what happened. And uh, in 1907, like I said, uh, they wrote that first paper. And it was all talking about the premise of the large, quote-unquote, castle and moat theory, um, which we use today for the network security paradigm, where networks are supposed to be protected like the castle and the moat. Because, you know, when we think about the rulers of the kingdoms, you know, the castles were built way up high on a mountain. And then down below... Uh, was the water, was the moat. And a lot of times we've heard about the fact that, um, you know, they would put in, um, you know, they have the water, which would obviously keep people from trying to expose the castle um, by digging underground. Obviously, that would be a problem. They couldn't do that. And also, it was about the fact that they said that they would put, you know, uh, let's say um, alligators and other uh, creatures in the water, but the truth of the matter is that these uh, creatures, like alligators, they can't live in a moat. Did you know that? Alligators can't live in a castle moat. 
And um, it's a big list of errors. And they would not survive. And most moats were dry. They didn't have water. So wet moats uh, needed water sources, primarily a river to feed it. So a lot of times when they said they had a castle and a moat, well, the moat had no water. So the whole point of, you know, the moat really didn't hold water. Uh, you know, no pun intended there. So were all castle moats filled with water? And so um, this is the thing. Usually but not always filled with water. The existence of a moat was a natural result of early methods of uh, fortification of earthworks for the ditch produced by the removal of earth to form a, a rampart of valuable parts of the defense system. So they could put a lot of things in there. So the question you might be asking is, so what did castles uh, fill their moats with? And um, they were usually filled with water um, from a nearby source. Uh, such as spring, lake, or rivers, and dams could be built that would control the level water in the moat, while some of the fancy moats uh, had stone sides, and most moats had simple banks of earth left over them. So um, it's interesting. When we think about moats, uh, again, some moats were dry, some were filled, and it was there to protect uh, the empire of the castle. That's that's really the premise of a moat. So now that we understand what a moat is and, and why we have a moat, I think the biggest issue comes to play is how does this play in our life? Well, when we think about castles, right, and we think about networks, was there, you know, they built something that's very important to us in life. Uh, if a network goes down, our business might be out. If a castle gets um, destroyed, that might lead to the ruin of the uh, empire that's being ruled, right? So when we think about a moat, when we think about a network, we think about protection. So DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, was on exactly the right path, and they were on it way before anyone else. They knew that this is something the world needed to embrace, but, you know, a lot of people were pig-headed, and they didn't believe in what was going on. They didn't understand what the network security paradigm was, you know. And in 2001, the IEEE released the 802.1x standard. Um, and so you might be asking, well, what is the two of the uh, 802.01 standard? Yeah, the the 80 it's the 802.1x uh, standard. And so um, it was NAC, Network Access Control, and so. The basic premise was that if you plug something into a port, that port would not have access to the network unless it was uh, granted. So NAC enabled administrators to provide uniform access control across wired and wireless networks so they could manage whether access was granted or not granted. And uh, this you know, grew as we, uh, let's say, fell into the BYOD, bring your own device, social media, cloud computing, and enterprise networking resources. Uh, it was a game changer for everyone. And so you'd probably be asked, well, what can you do with a 2.1x network uh, control? So there are many things that you can do um, you know, uh, and ways to deploy a NAC. But the main thing is pre-admission control, blocking authenticated messages, 
devices and user detection, identifying users and devices with predefined credentials or machine IDs like the Mac IDs. If we don't see the right Mac ID, well, we just don't pay attention to it. We don't, uh, we don't talk to it. Authentication and author authorization, verifying and providing access, onboarding, uh, providing uh, information that a device needs so we can make sure it's correct before security management gets um, basically deployed. Uh, profiling, scanning endpoint devices, policy enforcement, uh, posted mission control, and these are just some of the things. But I feel a lot of people didn't realize what was going on. So 802.1x is the following. We start out with initi initiation, and typically a switch or a client device sends the request, and um, the other device, uh, basically, it, once it sends the EAP response via the device, uh, to the authenticator, it, the message then comes back uh, to authenticate it or not to allow. Authentication then either happens, messages pass between the authentication server and the device to validate uh, the piece of information, whether this is correct. Do we have the right Mac? Um, you know, is it coming from the right uh, subnet? If the credentials are valid, the authentication server notifies the authenticator says, hey, I'm letting you through and I'm giving access to the port. There's accounting issues like with radius accounting, keeping session records, including users and device details. Uh, and then there's termination. Sessions are terminated by disconnecting the endpoint device by using management software. So the great thing about 802.1x is that it allows a good way that people can actually control their networks. That's right. I said it's a great way. But the problem was a lot of people were against this concept. Yeah, they were against it. Why? I think they were against it because they really didn't know what was happening. They didn't know why things were happening. Uh, they didn't know really a lot of anything. And so when we think about AO211X, it didn't catch on immediately, but it did eventually catch on. So you'll be happy uh, you know, to know that. Uh, another thing I want to bring to your attention is uh, DISA. So... Um, DISA is uh, is is very interesting because see, DISA. Uh, if you guys know who DISA is, uh, but DISA uh, is the uh, is the Defense Information System Agency, and DoD is the Department of Defense, and they release their work. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, regarding uh, something that's very very important, and that was uh, regarding their paper. Uh, and this really was talking about the ZTA. And so the ZTA, which in English, uh, to kind of break this down for you, ZTA um, is not a new concept. They published this in 2007. But again, in 2007, they were already starting to come on board with ZTA, Zero Trust Access, which we're going to talk more about. Uh, Google implemented their first ZTA, a code name basically Beyond Corp, an open source implementation of this on the Google service servers. And um, it came to fruition because of research uh, that was done on a paper called Transcend. And that's where the whole thing actually you know, started getting wings from. So ZTA is not new. Um, it seems like it just came out of the woodwork, but 
it's been formulating for years. It's just nobody really gave it wings so that it could breathe. But these different shifts and these different authority figures that we're seeing definitely made a huge change. It allowed people to understand it. And I know that you're probably on the fence and saying, hey, John, you know, this sounds crazy. It's not. Well, let me talk to you about a real-life example. How many of you guys remember Sony? They're still around, Sony Corporation? Well, I got news for you guys. Sony didn't just get hacked. They got nuked from the inside. Well, what does that mean, John? Why do I care that Sony was, you know, not just hacked. They were nuked from the inside. Well, you should care. Because most firewalls are designed with the premise to protect things, okay, coming into the network. But you know one thing they don't protect? They don't protect traffic inside the network. So if you've got a bad actor, whether it's a contractor, employee, vendor, etc., and they deploy malicious code through a USB or what have you, and it starts inside the organization. Well, because of the way security was designed years ago, people figure, well, not that he's going to try to attack from within. Yeah, that's what they did. And because nobody expected it, that's exactly what they did. And because there was no protection against it, it brought Sony to their knees. Now, they didn't know what happened, right? Sony um, didn't know uh, they, they were uh, attacked uh, internally. So by understanding that the hackers had physical access during the attack, that's obviously what went on, okay? And I will tell you that according to employees who speak to uh, salted hash on the condition that their uh, name should not be allowed. The corporate network is still um, had some major issues. And again, when this was originally published back around 2018, uh, there were issues, right? VPN access um, being unavailable. Uh, Sony pulled the plug on the network in Culver City in New York, while overseas operations were either limited or offline. In many cases. Now, it was hacked by a GOP warning. And uh, this is the, the quote that they got from the hack. It says, quote unquote, we've already warned you. And this is just a, be a beginning. We continue till our requests be met. We've obtained all your internal data, including your secrets and top secret clips. If you don't obey us, we'll release data shown below to the world. Determine what you'll do till November the 24th, 11 p.m. GMT. Now, the problem started when a group called itself GOP triggered a login script that would display a warning message anytime an employee logged into their corporate account. The message demanded that Sony meet previously established demands, but the exact nature of these demands was not very clear. And failure to do so would result in the publication of compromised internal documents. Now, the GOP, uh list included private key files, source code files, password files uh, for Oracle, SQL databases, inventory lists for hardware, other assets, network maps, outlines, productions, um, 
scripts, uh, you know, um, basically shoot lists, uh, financial documents, other information, and and more. But in a statement, Sony would only confirm, and I quote, they're investigating an IT matter, refusing to discuss any more details. And when contacted, the GOP remained silent for most of Monday. But it changed the next day when someone claimed to represent the group started emailing the media. Well, according to statements made by Gob, not just salted hash, but to the Verge as well, the group had physical access to the Sony network. And that access likely happened because someone on the inside helped. Yeah. Quote, unquote, I've already contacted the UK register with details. Quote, and wrote Lena, the name associated with the GOP account that responded to Salted Hash on that Tuesday morning. However, quote, I'll tell you this, we don't want money. We want equality. Sony left their doors unlocked, and it bit them. They don't do physical security anymore. In a statement to The Verge, uh, Lena referenced the need for equality once again, adding that Sony didn't want such a thing and that it was an upward battle, close quote. So, quote, according to Lena, Sony doesn't lock their doors physically, so we work with our other staff with similar interests to get in. I'm sorry I can't say more. Safety for our team is important. This is what they told The Verge. Now, if the claims are true and the GOP had help from the inside in order to accomplish their aims, this is a major disaster for Sony. And it's one thing leading to another for an attacker to gain access from the outside. But to get help from the inside, that's just like, that's like crazy. So physical security related to breaches, including those that had helped people from the outside, from the inside, um, very difficult to contain. And so the issue was Sony didn't have ZTA. Nobody knew what ZTA was, Zero Trust Access, Zero Trust Network Access. Nobody knew because the whole idea of you hacking a computer from the inside, well, it was kind of like nobody did it. But that's exactly what viruses and a lot of malicious code and spyware uh, do. They go after what you don't know. And then by the time you do know, it's way too late. And there's nothing for you to do, and there's really nothing else. But the fact that you wish you would have thought of that. Now, because of this, we have problems, right? Now, you're probably asking me, hey, John, uh, did the government have any internal, um, let's say, hack attacks? Well, yeah. So they had things called uh, end of life. Um, many U.S. governments uh, said the agencies uh, had been hacked as part of a broader cyber attack. And uh, dozens of other companies. And the list kept growing. And so, you know, in fact, uh, CISA and the FBI issued a warning that the CLOP was exploiting a previously unknown vulnerability in MoveIt. Okay, uh, program they all use to uh, transfer files back and forth. And in a rapid hacking spree, the group used the flaw to steal files from at least 47 organizations and demand payment not to publish them online. Uh, 
So the question is, sometimes people don't want money. Sometimes people just want to let others know that they're wrong and that they're right. Sometimes, like they said, they're just going to um, get equality, and it could be equality for anything from race, religion, sexual orientation, creed, color. It could be a variety of things. So the question you might be asking is, why did GOP hack Sony? Well, GOP, just so you know, um, stands for Guardians of Peace. And on November 24th, Sony employees came to work in Culver City, California to find images of grinning red skulls on computer screens. And the hackers identified themselves as GOP, or the Guardians of Peace. And they made off with vast amounts of data. Uh, the reports had suggested somewhere near 100 terabytes. Wiped company hard drives and began dumping sensitive documents on the internet. And the sensitive information the hackers divulged, salary, personnel records for tens of thousands of employees, as well as Hollywood stars. Embarrassing email traffic between executives and movie moguls and lots of other things. And even things like unreleased feature films. Um, it was a real mess. Uh, who did it? That's the million-dollar question. The suspicion has targeted in on the North Korean government or a band of allied hacktivists. Uh, the Hermit Kingdom is the apolopolitic over the interview and uh, they've when they're originally interviewed. And so the issue is there's speculation. This doesn't mean that the North Korean government or even the same hacker collective is responsible. In the world of cyber warfare, hackers will often dissect and imitate successful techniques because they've worked in other times for other people. So the question is, why did Sony scrub the interview? Because they did. People who may or may not have been tied to the hackers posted a vague message uh, threatening the 9-11 style attacks against uh, other threats and uh, chose to play the film. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security said that there wasn't any evidence of a credible threat against the American movie theaters, but several major chains, including AMC and Regal, decided to play it safe, all told change that control about half of the country's movie screens decided against playing the interview. Sony then followed suit, pulling the movie entirely. So were theaters in danger? It's tough to say for sure. And North Korea had made lots of threats toward the U.S. before this. And will we ever get to see the interview? Probably. The movie costs about $44 million to make, and according to documents leaked by the hackers, the ad campaign so far had cost tens of millions on top of that. And you can't see the interview, but um, Time's movie critic did. What will most likely happen is some limited release in the future when everything calms down might come out. And so the issue is that how the hackers do it? Well, they don't know exactly um, but um, it can be said that there was a coding error or an employee who clicks on an infected link. I have to believe that it was an employee that clicked on a link that helped the bad actor get in. So somebody was working on the inside. FireEye, the parent company of the cybersecurity firm Sony hired to probe the hack, studied the network security 
of more than 1,200 banks, government agencies, and manufacturers over a six-month period ending in 2014 and found that 97% had their last line of defense breached at some point in time. You see, banks think they're impetuous to hackers. I want to tell you something. They're not. Um, not that everyone's perfect, but banks always think they're the greatest. Uh, I do security for a lot of banks. And I can give them recommendations on how they can improve the security, how they can become better. But you know what a lot of them don't want to do? They don't want to take my advice. I tell them time and time again, this is a problem. This needs to be addressed. You're going to link personal information out there. And if this gets out, your bank could potentially be under serious legal implications. And they really don't take it too seriously because they don't want to spend any money. So once the hackers uh, you know, had gotten in, they, they tried to gain elevated security permissions to spread across the network. And what made the Sony hack different was the fact that it wasn't detected until large quantities of data had been swiped. And what stood out was several analysts say was not the sophistication of the breach, but the havoc the culprits sought to wreck. Quote, the attack was very targeted, very well thought out, and um, they had, if not one, there might have been more people on the inside. But the thing is, there are lots of groups out there that do this not for money. They do this because they know that some companies are acting in an immoral or in a way that, let's say, is um, being unfair, right? Maybe it's the case that uh, you've hired people, and maybe – for whatever reason, um, those people in the company, let's say hypothetically, were taking uh, data. And maybe they're the big CEOs. And they're taking this data, and they happen to know that they're making millions of dollars off this data. But nobody's really learning about it because they're being so smug. They want to expose them. So either A, they're going to go and pay the piper, number one. And they're going to come clean. They don't even want any money. Or they're going to get terminated from the company and be uh, punished. So they're either asking the person to stop their ways. A lot of times they don't want to do anything. They just want to get the hacker to uh, the person that's, let's say, stealing the data, I should say. Because the hacker is trying to get the person that's, let's say, compromising the company's data. Uh, I knew a company uh, not too long ago that had a um, – it was a uh, SolidWorks designer. And the funny thing is, the guy actually um, was fired. Okay, that's a red flag, right? Well, about a year later, they brought this guy back. Now, this guy was very arrogant. And I just knew something was up with this guy. I didn't exactly know what it was, but I knew something was up. And what I knew was that this... Um, what he was doing was probably so bad that uh, it would cause problems down the road. And guess what? One morning, I got a phone call. And they noticed that the files he was working on were open on his desktop. But one day, he screwed up and he left files open. But he went so far as to leave the USB stick in the computer. He just totally forgot. Then we ran a track to see what he had copied in the last 30 days. You know what we found? Design files. 
files that the company was bidding on to do, files that he took and that he might have been engaging with them directly. So I told the, um, the directors of the company, they said, well, he's a good guy. You know, we really don't want to do anything. And they let that person basically cause him damage until a customer came to them and told them that the work they were doing was getting exploited. Now they had to react. Now he decides he wants to do forensics and do all this stuff. But when we find the data, guess what he decides he doesn't want to do? He doesn't want to press charges. See, that makes no sense to me. I hope Sony has learned from this lesson. That's the biggest thing. All right. So we know one issue. Did you know, ladies and gentlemen, that the government has gotten hacked many times? They've gotten hacked because of end-of-life software being too cheap to want to upgrade, right? Uh, there are two major federal government agencies. I'm not going to name which ones. And the hackers attack the agencies uh, by targeting public-facing servers that were running outdated end-of-life Adobe Cold Fusion software used for building web applications. <clears throat> end of life software means that the developer has announced publicly it will no longer support or receive further software or security updates. We've seen this with Microsoft before. Running end of life software is by definition risky because it cannot be patched. And exposing the organization who runs the software to cyber attacks is a very, very big problem. And so when we think about this, they've got burnt. One of the vulnerabilities, the critical uh, vulnerability, CVEs, critical vulnerability exposures, CVEs, uh, known exploited vulnerabilities catalog, um, is the Adobe Cold Fusion deserialization of untrusted data vulnerability. The Adobe Cold Fusion contains a deserialization of untrusted data vulnerability that allows for remote code execution. Apply updates per vendor instructions, known to be used in ransomware campaigns, possibly. Started coming out um, 3-15-2023 is when they were aware of it. Due to be fixed by 4-5-2023. That's crazy. So why is this happening? So CVEs is, is, stands for Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. And so a lot of times, you know, these companies get notified. Things like this are happening. But they feel, oh, you know, that's not going to happen to us. You know, we got all this great security. Yeah, you get all this great security that could be crippled at the click of a button. I mean, that's why in Outlook programs, we tell people to disable the auto-loading of the message so that viruses and things can't auto-play. Even if you open a message, it's not going to run the message or script unless you actually click on that thing. I always recommend to have that off. So... Yeah, the government had uh, faced um, a lot of attacks, a lot. Um, they had, uh, you know, um, many things. There were clampdowns on federal security after big attacks uh, at the White House, okay? So um, 
the White House plan to release an ambitious strategy to make federal agencies tighten their cybersecurity uh, controls um, because there are a lot of high-profile hacks against the government that were becoming more prevalent. So um, in January of 2022, they got serious and they decided that something needed to be done. And guess what they did? They did something they should have done a long time ago. Yes, the government is, in 2022 is mandating now that all of its offices and agencies be on ZTA infrastructure by 2024. So I think that was, <coughs> I think what happens with these agencies is, I don't want to say they don't know, but they're being educated by, uh, basically by uh, vendors. And these vendors don't necessarily get it. They don't get it. And, you know, the people that are buying this stuff don't get it either. They They really don't get it either. So... I think when we um, when we think about this, the first thing that comes to mind is, first of all, why is the government so susceptible? Well, I think the real reason um, that um, this is happening is because of the cost. Right. It's not a bid list. They feel that it's not something they should do. And just don't worry about it. It only happened one or two times. But the question I want to ask you is how much did cyber attacks cost the U.S. government? Let's just say in 2022. Let's just say that. So data breaches led by the United States Postal Service, uh, OPM, okay? They have led pretty high, all right? And uh, by December 30th, 2022, from the past up to that, uh, it estimated that it costs our government close to $26 billion. Now, a lot's changing. There's more ransomware statistics out there. It was 20 billion in 2021. And the numbers expecting to rise, get this, ladies and gentlemen, not 10%, not 20%. If I took the number, okay, 26 billion, okay, and I was to and I was gonna multiply that, okay, by a hundred, a hundred, I get 260 billion. It's going to be slightly over that, guys. Be like 105%. It's, it's estimated that by 2031, that the cost for cybersecurity will be at 265 billion. That's just sick. It's crazy. And I've said this before, guys. Whether you have a small company, whether you're a large corporation, or you're independent, those that believe that they don't need to protect themselves will be sorry. Because it's not a question of if you're going to get attacked, 
but when if you're not properly protected. Let me say that again. It's not a question of if you're going to get attacked, but when if you're not properly protected. It's not a question of if, but when if you're not properly protected. Now, not to get too deep in this, but I do want to explain a little bit about this. Um, you should be protected for things like malware. You should have web filtering, vulnerability scanning. You should have a sandbox, um, patching. These are all things you should have. So now that we know how important <coughs> it is to have an infrastructure that is going to make a difference, um, hopefully you will make a choice to do something immediately, right? And I think if you can embrace the fact that there is going to be, there's going to be um, a big debacle. And I don't mean to scare people, but I want you to wake up. I don't want you to come in the morning and say, oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do? And, and I think that's probably the biggest thing I can tell you right now is that if you don't understand the complexity and how this can greatly affect you, then you're exactly the ones that need to be protected. You're the ones that the bad actors are going to go after. You might say, well, gee, John, you know, I'm, I'm a small company. Nothing's going to happen to me. One of my clients, I won't name the client, but probably over 20-some years ago, didn't want to do a firewall. I said, okay, no problem. Didn't matter to me. And uh, he's like, you know, that's a lot of money. Okay, no problem. So not even a week or two, I get a call. He's got a problem. And I'll call the guy, Mike. Like, hey, Mike, um, you got hacked. Yeah, well, I have antivirus software. Yeah, but that's not enough. You need a firewall. You need to protect all these, against all these different things. And like, really? People that live behind a firewall for the network have peace of mind. People that don't are going to keep repeating life's lessons and they're going to get more expensive and they're going to potentially not only knock your computer out, but they're going to knock your entire infrastructure out and they might even put you out of business. That's pretty scary. So the cost of protecting yourself is not in the millions, okay? It's not that much. If we were to take a small company, I'm just going to give you a rough number. And let's just say... You know, we put all the kinds of protection that we need to put in. And let's say you had, I don't know, 10 people, okay? And we divide that, okay? And we divide that number over 365 days, okay? It's going to cost you $1.20. $1.20 per employee. Or contractor, okay? And I factored that for about 20 employees. So I think knowledge is very key. So now you can understand why the government did this. But we've been starting to see so much about ZTA, ZTA, ZTA because of 
the fact that so many people are just getting knocked. I mean, crazy. So what are the requirements for ZTA? Let's go there. So first of all, ZTA um, has to be 100% visibility to all devices and users and traffic that is both encrypted and non-encrypted. So in the past, we were only able to see non-encrypted traffic. Now, we're able to see encrypted traffic. And uh, MFA, multi-factor authentication, right, is required. It's required. It's just, it's a, it's a no-brainer. It is required. So now you might be saying, hey, John, this sounds really cool. How do I do it? Well, first thing I want to tell you is why people fail at ZT implementations. So there are, there are some reasons. But the reasons may or may not shock you. And I have an acronym to help you remember. TOE. We all have a TOE, right? We have several TOEs. So a TOE stands for Technological, Organizational, or Economic. Technological, Organizational, or Economic. And you know, the biggest one is usually um, Economic. The second one is usually organizational because they don't want to do this right now. So my question is to you, would you rather spend that $1.20 um, per employee now? Or would you potentially want to spend, I'll keep your, keep your hand on for this. Okay. Not million, billion. Okay. Take that number, and we're going to divide it by 20 employees, okay? And we're going to divide that by 365 days a year. That means, ladies and gentlemen, would you want to spend $1.20 to protect each employee, or would you potentially like to be paying out $36 billion? That's a lot. That's an awful lot. And you know, the question is, as you put more time into this, the harder it's going to get to fix and the more expensive it's going to be. Right? Just like with your health. If you take care of yourself, your health bills are low. If you don't, your health bills are very high. So now you know why ZTA fails, right? The technological uh, the organizational and the economic. But this shouldn't impede you from doing it. If you don't have the technical skills, hire somebody. Organizational skills, get your company on board. Talk to some other companies that are maybe talk to some uh, companies of similar size. Or maybe even in your organization that are not competitors. Maybe you're in the medical field. Maybe you do... Um, metal implants. Maybe there's another um, pharmaceutical company and they manufacture things, but they don't do metal implants. Maybe um, they do surgical supplies. Now you might say, John, they're very different. They are, but they have a very similar risk factor. And once somebody gets in trouble in the health industry, everybody sues everyone, unfortunately. I was talking to somebody the other day who was uh, giving us a quote on insurance for something. 
And he was telling me that he was getting sued. And I said to him, oh, mask, why is this? Oh, he said, it's stupid. He said, I was backing up my neighbor. We don't even get along with them. And I tapped their car. And so I got out. I went to the um, um, the door. And I was just backing up because I just went to go pick a pizza to bring home. And I tapped the car. I just pulled in, went to the door and spoke to his, his wife. And uh, she said, uh, oh, don't worry about it. It's no problem. She looked at it. Everything's fine. An hour later, the lady came back out, rang my doorbell. You know what she said? Oh, there's a lot of damage. What kind of damage? Well, there's a lot of damage underneath. It's sad when people, um, let's say, stoop to suing because they can't be ethical. That's that's what's really sad. Uh, there's another story that I heard real quick about this somewhere. There was a, a charity. Now, I belong to a charity. I'm a president of a charity. And they were having this event to help raise money for whether it was Cancer Society or Heart Association, whatever it was. And they had this big festival. Well, when the festival was over, one of the trucks, when it was exiting, it went over one of the lawns and it made maybe a little bit of a divot, a little bit of tire marks in the, in the, uh, in the lawn. Well, the um, homeowner didn't contact the charity and say, hey, could you help us fix this? No. They went to a lawyer and sued the charity for the tire marks. Now, the question you might be asking yourself is, John, how expensive or, or what is the cost to repair tire marks from a truck on your lawn? It could be anywhere from $500 to $1,000. But they didn't need to sue the association. They would have been willing to help. In fact, the fact that they are an association, they had connections with people that would have been happy to go in there and fix it at no charge. But people just get all up in themselves. I don't know why. I wish more people in the world would want to help people. Then our world would be an even better place. All right. I got one more topic to cover with you guys tonight. And that is this. Meta rolls out encrypted messaging by default. For Facebook and Messenger. What the heck is this all about, John? You heard me. Meta rolls out encrypted messages for Facebook and, okay, so I, th I think that's a, I think that's a pretty cool thing. Rolls it out because, uh, um, basically for messages. And, and I think this, ladies and gentlemen, could be a serious problem. I mean, a serious problem. So Meta is rolling out uh, messaging for encrypted and non-encrypted messages on Facebook. And this just rolled out about a day or so ago. And users of Meta's Facebook and the Messenger app will now automatically gain the protection of end-to-end -end encryption, which is supposedly going to be a major boost in security and privacy, which was just impacted this past Wednesday. And this has been uh, deliberated about for a long time to keep users' messages from 
prying eyes by scrambling their contents to everyone but the intended senders and recipients. But the move could trigger some other opposition by government officials who have warned that making messages harder for third parties to read might facilitate criminal activity. And Meta had been public about its plans to make encrypted messages the default mode for its messaging, but the companies and other messaging services uh, like WhatsApp defaulted encrypted communication in 2016. And so this was a slow path. So you might be saying, gee, um, how does the new, let's say, meta encrypted messages work? Well, that's a great question. Um, it's an end-to-end -end, uh, encryption. And so it's just keeping the messages in the right hands. That, that's basically the main, the main thing. Um, Messenger previously had the option to turn on end-to-end encryption a line to be read. Now it's something that has to be uh, enabled um, automatically. So pretty cool there. Guys, we have covered a lot today. We have talked about ZTA, zero trust access, zero trust network access. Um, remember, ZTA is basically, just to get you guys, the last point I want to talk about here is, so ZTA um, is one part of it, right? If you ask me, John, you know, what is the, the difference between ZTA and ZTNA. All right, so ZTA is knowing about who and what is controlling on your network, okay? Uh, ZTNA gets more into the devices, okay? Um, governing access to networks, applications, and um, this is something that has grown so much in just the last 14 months, okay? Um, so ZTA, ZTAA, and ZTNA. All right, so zero trust is all about the concept that we should trust nothing and validate everything, right? Zero trust doesn't imply trust just because you're at a certain network uh, location. Zero trust access is a security model that offers end-to-end -end zero trust across all systems, right? Everything has to be trusted before it'll be allowed. And zero trust network access is the most popular and widely used model of the ZTA architecture. And it provides users access to network systems and assets uh, after proper authentication and verification. And again, they use the multi-factor authentication. But the big question is this, it's gotta be made more mandatory just like we had pci compliance i think what's going to happen is they got a mandate that companies are using zta as their is their method i think so well guys it's been an amazing privilege a pleasure and honor to be with you this fantastic evening before i do say goodbye which unfortunately i have to do i'm john c morley i'm a serial entrepreneur and i'm a podcast host and a podcast coach and a specialist in helping businesses uh tell a story that leads to them growing and being more scalable and profitable typically work with companies that bring in 10 million or more. And uh, I love to help people find their story, tell their story. That's what I love to do. I hope you guys have an amazing evening and I'm going to catch you guys next week. All right, before sure to check out more of my great content at believemeachieve.com and uh, we'll see you real soon, everyone. All right, be well.